Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Bedlam. An institution with so striking an atmosphere that an entire state of chaos was named after it. Ask anybody what they think they know about Bedlam, and the first thing they'll say is, oh, well, it's an asylum. With a little bit of nudging, they might think of tourists going to laugh at the mad people. And I use the word mad in the context of those 18th century tourists. Mental health is one of those areas in which society has had to rapidly revise and update its ideas. There's still a long way to go. Bedlam itself, which I was surprised to discover still exists and is still giving mental health care, is unveiling an overhaul in its image and facilities. It's not called Bedlam, it's called Bethlehem. And that cast-iron fact about it being an asylum? Not so cast-iron. In fact, not true at all. So with 320 beds spread across 20 or so wards, what is Bethlehem now? It's Saturday the 21st of February 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a song through from your front door. to South East London. It feels like we've gone beyond South East London, actually. Uh, there's greenery in abundance, and there are semi-detached cottages with their own parking spaces, uh, which tells you all you need to know. I've just got off the train at Eden Park and headed down to a place that I've heard a lot about. It's the Bethlehem Hospital. It's a psychiatric hospital, and it's got a lot of history attached to it. With me at the moment, two figures which are melancholy and raving, but that is not my two guests today, who are respectively Richard Morley, who is the Senior Communications and Media Officer, and Victoria Northwood, who is the Head of Archives and Museums here at Bethlehem. Hello. 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 I mean, this, in a way, this is a perfect episode for radio because we're going to be doing a lot of imagining today. The place is being renovated at the moment. It's in the midst of a refit. You'll be hearing listener booted feet going up and down the stairs as building works are carried out. How far through the renovation project are we? Well, we're nearly complete now. The build 
building was originally designed as office space, so we've been removing a lot of internal walls within the building to create the spaces we need for storing the collections and uh, creating gallery spaces. So that work's all been done, and really we are getting towards the end of the fit-out. So we have a permanent exhibition which is just being uh, completed, and we should be hanging some paintings and putting some objects in next week. The rest is just the sort of final touches of paintwork, really. So there's, there's a lot of activity going on, but we are we're very close to the end now, which is really exciting. And we do have the two statues that I mentioned. They are either side of the sweeping staircase that takes us up to two of the exhibitions there. What, what can we say about these fellows who, I should mention, are in recumbent posture? Uh, one of them looks fed up and is, uh, is manacled. Uh, the other fellow looks like he's had one too many. <laughs> yeah. So Raving and Melancholy Madness are um, the two of the most iconic things that we have in our collection. Uh, they were originally above the gates of the hospital's second site at Moorfields in the city. Um, they're all that survive of that building now. It was uh, demolished and is, is now really where um, Moorgate Station is, that sort of area, Finsbury Circus. The statues were rescued after that hospital was demolished. It Well, partly demolished, it partly fell down. Uh, and they were brought to the hospital's third site south of the river um, at St George's Fields. They did go temporarily on loan to both the Museum of London and the Victoria and Albert Museum. And then in 1970, when our own small museum opened, they came back to us there. We never had very much space to display them. So what's really wonderful about their new location is you can really step back and look at them. You can walk around the back of them and it just really appreciate the sculptures. We'll be talking a little bit more, I suspect, about the smallness of the previous museum and the very real need for a bigger place. Uh, when people, Richard, talk about hospitals in London, it often feels to me like they're talking about a psychogeography that I, I don't really have access to, if I'm being honest. And I don't know uh, whether that's because it's hospital users or whether just a different way of using London means that you're more aware of these enormous establishments around town. Could you locate us here in the context of hospitals in town and uh, how it fits into the London medical scene? Sure. Um, Bethlehem Royal Hospital is part of South London and Morsley NHS Foundation Trust, which is one of eight mental health trusts in London. Um, the, the trust itself has four inpatient sites around South London, and we provide services in South East London to about five different London boroughs, as well as national services. So people on the site will either be local people who might be coming from the local community uh, for a, a sort of day service or staying as inpatients and also national people so we have some unique services here um, which are only available at this hospital site so people can come from all around the country to access those services and it specialises as you say in, in mental health yes yeah, purely a psychiatric hospital there's something quite interesting that I was reading about that, which is the focus of the hospital on, on good mental health as opposed to, first and foremost, fixing mental illness. Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent that was always the case because uh, Bethlehem's a very old hospital and the current treatments we have for mental ill health are, are all quite recent 20th century developments. So in earlier years, Bethlehem had a real focus on sort of, you know, sort of decent food and little light gardening and fresh air and actually promoting good mental health rather than trying to resolve some sort of difficulty and I think that that's the case you know both for people working at the hospital now there's a real emphasis 
emphasis on promoting good mental health and well-being and I, and I think it's got to be the way forward really you know sort of um, prevention rather than cure so it is something that um, South London and Maudsley are very very interested in. How does that work though because it seems to me that if somebody comes to you then it's already uh, presumably a, a condition that they've noticed there's something going wrong so it's all, you're almost past that point already. Is there a lot of outreach that goes on? From the hospital point of view I mean I think the website has an emphasis on the five ways to well-being which I think has now been renamed the wheel of well-being because I think there's probably more than five things identified now but those sort of ideas which you know which are the original hospital would have recognised say you know go out and have a walk engage with the open space that sort of thing um, the museum certainly has taken those on board the Maudsley Charity which has funded the museum also funds something called the Recovery College and there again the idea is very much offering classes in well-being and improving your mental health rather than you know just having to end up in hospital or at your GP surgery when something goes wrong so I think you know there's there's a, a limit to what all hospitals can do because they're all set up to you know mend things when they're broken but I think it's a, you know it's a definitely a step in the right direction I think. That's interesting. Is it your impression that individually and maybe societally, maybe from, from the top down, we take enough preemptive care of our mental health? I don't think people do because actually it's that sort of, there's still that sort of embarrassment in even talking about it. And it does seem to be that mental health is talked about more on the news and that sort of thing. But actually, with your physical health, people go to the gym and they keep fit and, you know, hopefully they eat a reasonable amount and there's a lot of public health information out there about not drinking too much and, you know, not eating too much salt and not eating too much sugar. I don't think that there is that kind of preemptive, people don't talk about it as much with mental health somehow. You know, and I think it, it could be done a lot more. And I think we, you know, people are starting to talk about it more, and that's the way forward. But there's this sort of squeamishness, a bit of embarrassment about talking about it. You know, so I can't imagine that someone would say, "Oh, do you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel a bit. It's all getting a bit much. I think I'll go and book in for some counselling." You know, they might do it. I don't know that they'd be really open and positive about doing it. They might be, you know, seeing it with some sort of sense of failure. I, you know, it's. it's personal view but it, it doesn't seem that people are as open as talking about it well and it's, it's one of those things i suspect as well like insurance where you only realize the need for it uh, at the point at which it becomes pressing yeah and i think you know the and i think there is that sort of emphasis and people are sort of you know geared up to cope and crack on and you know not not accept that actually they need to look after themselves and put themselves first you know i think most people are so busy sort of you know working and doing what they need to do and just sort of concentrating on the basics of survival that actually the things that would help you to build up resilience um, are maybe seen as a bit of a luxury, you know, so having that long bath and just sort of chilling out, you know, seen as a bit of an indulgence and you should be, you know, learning French or doing something more practical. So I think there's that aspect as well that we're just not very good at giving ourselves time, actually. Whereas I guess if you're going to the gym for two hours and, you know, getting your heart rate going, then that's seen as a, you know, productive use of time. We are going to be heading upstairs uh, shortly to look at art, but some of the street names around here are intriguing in themselves, and it r- really prompts me to think a little bit about the history of the music. Richard is pointing at Victoria. He does not want to talk about the history <laughs> of the music. I hope she knows more than I do. <laughs> uh, well, we're on... Uh, it's Monk's Orchard, Monk's Orchard Road. Road. Yes, absolutely. So, um, traditionally, people have assumed that this was the site of a monastery or uh, something like that. It was actually the name of a local family the, the monks were a, a, a local family. It was, was never a sort of religious uh, foundation on this site. Um, the site that we're on is uh, over 200 acres. It's a sort of 
huge piece of green, really, in the middle of South London, on the edges of South London, and it was part of a larger local estate, the Langley Estate. Um, it became an independent estate in the late 18th, early 19th century. Is that the colonnaded building we see on the website? No, that's an earlier Bethlehem site, but there is, um, when you when you come to this site from the Croydon end, rather than the Eden Park station, the way you've come, you do see two uh, little uh, lodge buildings, so one of them is very sort of mock Tudor, it's quite a sort of strange building in the middle of the suburbs, and um, there's another little Georgian lodge, which is at the, the far, at the other end of Monk's Orchard Road. Um, so there are echoes of the original estate that was here where you look for them. There's also a Cheston Avenue nearby and Cheston was the hospital surveyor who who, um, did some of the design for the site. Uh, He sadly died just after it was completed so his name was commemorated in one of the local streets. What about Eden Park itself? Eden Park. I don't know a huge amount about Eden Park. So many religious overtones. Yeah, Yeah, it's sort of quite a wonderful name. The um, hospital's chaplain, who was a chap called O'Donoghue, who, uh, I don't know how much religious work he did, really, because he edited the hospital's in-house magazine and he took the time to write a history of Bethlehem. And, you know, I don't know how much actual work he did other than that. He seemed to have a lot of time on his hands. But he came and paid a visit down to the site before the hospital had actually officially bought it and he kind of broke into the house and had a good look around I mean it wasn't occupied obviously but he he sort of writes in the hospital magazine that this is going to be a sort of a new Eden for our Adams and Eves in the hospital you know and he really sort of picked up on that um, religious reference but where it came from originally I'm not sure any local historians out there will probably uh, be shouting at the radio as we speak. (laughs) It seems as though I guess you must have spent a little bit of time in his company reading uh, his, his work it sounds as though you've got quite an image of what this fellow was like. Well we've got the most wonderful photograph of him um, as you walk from Eden Park Station to the hospital, um, behind the fence there's quite a, there's quite a lot of um, ferns and there's a wonderful photograph of O'Donoghue literally up to the bottom of his beard in ferns when he came to visit, his wife must have taken the photograph I think, and um, so yes I have this sort of vision of this sort of bearded man and uh, surrounded by ferns really, um, I'm sure there's other photographs of him but that's the one that uh, I remember and I, I, it just quite appealed to me this sort of idea that they came down on the train for a good nose actually so they could go back to the people at the hospital and go well you know this is what they've got planned and look here's photos of the farm and and he was very um excited about the the countryside aspect because when they moved to St George's Fields it was fields by the early 20th century when he was the chaplain at the hospital it was you know Southwark Lambeth borders very built up very busy so he he writes in the magazine about seeing real cows and you know real trees as opposed to <laughs> Which is exactly how I started this uh, podcast, yeah. in fact. And it does seem that some of the buildings, uh, the, the domestic buildings, as you come down here, look as though they belong to a much more villagey lifestyle. It seems like the yeah. busyness on the roads is uh, somehow out of place. Yes, I think so. I mean, when um, when the hospital purchased Monk's Orchard Estate, it was part of a larger estate that had been sold off, and all the lots had gone, apart from Lot 1, which was the house and the home farm and the, the gardens, uh, which is what the hospital now occupies so there were various cottages and sort of small holdings and pubs and that sort of thing included in the estate when it was first sold a lot of the housing around here is from 1920s 1930s and you know dates from about the same time as the hospital or shortly afterwards so I, I would imagine it was you know a pretty rural place. Richard, on the historical side of things, I'm guessing there must be some uh, nuggets of information about the hospital or some particularly twinkly facts that have caught your eye in the course of your work. 
And yeah, I think I was talking the other day about how when they uh, constructed when they're constructing this site, they built a mini railway around it because it, it was over sort of uh, like say over 250 acres. So to move the building material around, they built this mini light railway, and we've got some fascinating pictures of that as well. So it's really interesting. And when, when did that disappear? Because I know the first thing any Londonist listener will want to know is how can we get on that railway? They never made it on the tube map either. Um, I think it was pretty much deconstructed as the buildings were constructed. But I think sort of the, the nature of this site. Um, it wasn't built as a traditional hospital asylum. It was built in uh, what's called a villa style. So all of the wards around the site are basically in standalone buildings with their own grounds around them. So it's quite, uh, it's quite spread out, really. I've got a couple of. One, I've got one question that's very specific to you, and one question that is in no way specific to you. Uh, one that's just, if it's okay, I'm taking a complete aside from everything here. I've never understood with some of the London hospitals why they're named after one area but appear in a different area. Do you happen to know what that's all about? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, Victoria's probably more educated in terms of the origins of Bethlehem Royal Hospital, but my, my kind of basic understanding of it is it, it was a sort of an adaptation of Bethlehem, and the word has sort of changed. Uh, well, I didn't, have, I didn't have here in mind in particular. I, was thinking, I think I'm right in saying that, for example, Charing Cross Hospital is in Hammersmith or something like that. Yeah. Or there's, there's one or two weird anomalies like that. I, I, I assume it's a similar kind of thing where they've moved from their original locations. Um, that was a straightforward as that. Time. I think it's sort of um, space and fresh air, and mm-hmm. and I suppose also if the if the hospitals own the land and they're able to sell land in central London and move slightly further out, it it makes some money. I suspect also the coming of the railway had an impact as well. Um, I think probably things have had to move over the years when the railways have come in. So whether Charing Cross Hospital was sort of in the way of development. Um, but yeah, I think, I think usually it's, you know, they're trying to get more, more space. And, you know, and of course, the idea of sort of fresh air and open space is, is central to both, you know, sort of physical health and, you know, mental health. So you'd get sort of things like fever hospitals would always want to be in places like Hampstead, you know, where you had fresh air and hills and that sort of thing. So um, I suspect it's to do with London becoming overcrowded and hospitals seeking, seeking more space. That's, that's really uh, obvious as soon as one starts to, to think about it. Of course, yeah, that, of course that would be the reason. No, no, no. Um, the, the very specific question. As the media officer, senior communications and media officer, what sort of thing do you find yourself dealing with in respect of the four hospitals that you're involved with? Um, a whole mix of things, really. I mean, a lot of our work at the moment really concentrates on trying to destigmatise mental health. Um, so we do a lot of work now on things like social media. Um, we've got a kind of really great following now. We've got sort of top uh, 15 Twitter accounts in the NHS, which doesn't sound that exciting, but in terms of healthcare, it's, it's pretty, pretty good stuff. Uh, we've got you know, nearly 9,000 followers on Twitter. So we're trying to regularly interact with people. There's a whole range of people there from you know, patients uh, to um, healthcare professionals, interested members of the public. Uh, so we do quite a lot of work around social media interactions. So we do tweet chats, for example. So we might get kind of one of our specialists in a certain area to come in and talk for an hour on uh, a key subject. So there's, there's quite a lot of work around stigma, a lot of just kind of general communication, working with our local communities. They're the kind of key things, really. In terms of that stigmatisation, I can understand, for example, that if your colleagues thought you've got a mental health problem and, and they didn't like the sound of that too much, you, you could be forced into a position or people uh, turning their backs on you or whatever it might be. Um, in terms of the individual who might be suffering from poor mental health, What's that destigmatisation uh, about? How does, how does that uh, work? I, th- I think it's really about kind of support, supporting them to actually kind of have a, have a network of people out there that are sort of going through the same things as them and other healthcare professionals helping to 
yeah, help to find kind of techniques and support, really. Is that on a sort of illness by illness, or is it the case that... Because I find it hard to believe that people don't know that mental health is a thing. Uh, so is it like no, nobody else has got this particular set of circumstances? I, th- I, think pe- I think you get kind of sort of general... People fall, may fall into general groups and experience s- similar kind of problems, and then I think that's where you see people coming together and looking for support, really, so... Well, we're going to head between um, uh, two atypical examples, I suspect, of uh, mental health conditions. Um, And we're going to head upstairs uh, between uh, melancholy and raving. It's not just raving, it's raving... Well, they're raving and melancholy madness is what they're known as. Um, I don't know if they were ever formally titled, but that's what we know them as. Does anyone still use the word madness in any respect? Colloquially, I think they do, but I think I don't know. It's been I think it's been reclaimed a bit. I mean, people just say, "Oh, that's mad," in a really sort of positive way. I think so. I think it's it's quite a. I don't know if people use this in a in a mental health context. It's maybe not patient notes anymore. <laughs> uh, let's head upstairs. London Est Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm Ed Quentin Wolfe, and we're at the Bethlehem. Hospital, South East London, with me, Richard Morley and Victoria Northwood, and I am in love with uh, a clock. Uh, this is a fantastic object. It's... I'm really glad you are, because the architect was dying to pull it off the wall. No! And, and get rid of it, and I said, no, it's lovely. Um, so I'm glad you like it. This is like a brass starburst. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if it's a 1931 original to the building or whether it's later, but I, I just quite liked it, really, so I'm glad you like it as well. Quite so, it goes, it goes very well with the oak doors and the lion doorknobs and the, the marble here. It's, all, it's got a very 1930s feel to it. We're about to head into the permanent exhibition, I yes, think. Yes, so this is the first of our two exhibition spaces. Um, it's uh, being designed and fitted out by Real Studios, who recently did the David Bowie exhibition at the V&A. So we've got... Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Benefide designers in here helping us out with this. Um, we've been very lucky. We've received some heritage lottery funding in order to be able to do this. There's no way we would have been able to afford it otherwise. So um, what you'll see as we go in um, is still very much a work in progress. But the idea is that we'll be combining different aspects of our collections. So there'll be works of art, there'll be historic objects, um, there'll be archive material. Um, but there'll also be some material that's been created specially for the exhibition. So we've been uh, filming people. We've been taking photographs so you'll see some sort of contemporary stuff as well going on in there. Um, We're aiming not to tell the history of Bethlehem from 1247 to the present day uh, because that would uh, not be be everyone's cup of tea I suspect Um, Well why ever not? (laughs) Well um, we're going to have a chronology um, so people who do want to trace the history in that way uh, this this area that we're standing in at the moment will have key dates and some photographs um, shown so that people can locate themselves in the history and work out where they are um, but the exhibition will be a lot more thematic so the idea is we're looking at different themes which you'll see flagged up as we go in and each theme will contain both contemporary and historical material because most of, most of the themes we're looking at have a, a historical and a contemporary resonance. I feel compelled to ask what was here in 1247? Uh, oh my goodness, I should think just fields, fields and farms and things. So, um, so Bethlehem Hospital itself in 1247 would have been a small priory. Uh, it was roughly where uh, Liverpool Street Station's located now uh, on Bishopsgate. Um, and it was a sort of small priory. We don't know a huge amount about the building. It appears on a map that the Museum of London have in their collection, uh, but we don't know a huge amount about it. And actually the um, archives dating from that period are in the National Archives. We, we don't have them. So it's a bit of a, you know, sort of mysterious, hazy period of time for us. Um, we know a little more about the subsequent buildings and, and what went on in the hospital then. Well, we drop the chronology and we go to themes. Let's head into the exhibition. I'm reminded, listener, of my first visit to the Tate Modern, where one of the areas was designed to look like a gallery being put together, complete with tools lying around, but was in fact itself a work of art. Uh, here, the installation includes uh, actors who've been employed to play builders, and they're up ladders, pretending to install things. Yes, no, this is uh, unfortunately definitely still a work in progress, not the, uh, not the finished article. Um, so the, the stage we're at at the moment, we've got most of the graphics up on the walls. Uh, there are still some display cases being built, at the moment. Um, there's some more glass sitting around because some of our paintings uh, aren't glazed, so we will have sort of protection in front of them. So yeah, there's still quite a, quite a lot of work going on. All, all of which might well be done by the time this goes out, which I think is going to be probably in February. Yes, and yes. That's, that's your opening time, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So we're uh, due to open to the public in uh, mid-February, coinciding with uh, spring half-term week for those people with children. So yes, yeah, so by then, uh, all things being equal, everything will be completely complete and ship shape. Could you give us a bit of a, an example of what we might experience here, a taster? Okay, so um, when you first step into the exhibition, uh, you'll recognise that Raving and Melancholy, we've used uh, an engraving of the two statues as a, as a sort of design feature, really, which comes up throughout the museum. Um, the, the statues are very important to us. Um, there was no way we were going to get them up the staircase. They're Portland stone, incredibly heavy, so the, the, um, they were never going to be upstairs in the, uh, in the exhibition, but it means that they they still join us up here which I think is very important Um, the exhibition has a number of different themes so the first one is visiting Bethlehem and the 
reason we start with that is that of all the things people know or think they know about Bethlehem is that you used to be able to pay to come and laugh at the mad people. Uh, it was actually the unrestricted visiting was a really short period of time in Bethlehem. And a PR disaster. Yeah, well, yes, in a number of ways. So when there was unrestricted visiting, um, you you see this picked up in Hogarth's engraving of the Rake's Progress. You know, there's this sort of uh, the people all around and the ladies with their fans sort of walking around observing. There's also a lot of written accounts of that period of time. And it was, it was in London tourist guides of the day. So, you know, one of the things you were recommended to do was go and see the lunatics at Bedlam. You know, it was on the tourist trail in the 18th century. Um, but it actually stopped in the 17, in 1770. They they ended this um, practice because they realised that people weren't necessarily coming to be educated or enlightened. Uh, after <laughs> after it had gone on for how long? Um, I think it's certainly sort of you know 30, 40 years. Uh, so it's a reasonable you know uh, quite a period of time just uh, in the length the length of the history. It's a relatively short period. Um, but yeah, the idea had been that uh, you you could visit Bethlehem, you could you could learn from it, and also it was a charity, so they needed charitable donations. And the idea was people would look around the hospital and say, gosh, isn't it doing marvellous work? I'll give a donation. Um, of course, what really happened was people had a few too many. They met up with their mates at the hospital. There were lots of dark corners. There's lots of people acting in possibly irrational ways. So a bit of bad behaviour might go unnoticed. Uh, and it was, it was a bit of a free-for-all. So um, after 1770, you could only visit the hospital if you had a formal uh, introduction and you, were, you, know, you had an admission ticket and it was all formal. Formalized. Um, now, the problem with that, of course, is if you haven't got anyone just dropping in on the off chance, um, you get to that sort of Ofsted inspection a frame of mind where everything's made very nice and shiny for when there's a formal visit and then everything sort of slips a bit. So in 1815 there ended up being a parliamentary inquiry into the state of Bethlehem. There was um, you know, a real sort of uproar about the state of things uh, because you know, that was the sort of unintended consequence really of stopping that um, unrestricted visiting. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea and it's one we're starting with because that's the one thing everyone thinks they know about the hospital so uh, it, it's it seems as though there might still be um obviously not resonances of that sort uh, but there might be challenges inherent in uh, running a museum and attracting people to, in, in the midst of a working hospital i mean what's what's interesting is when we when we have group visits to the hospital we'll we'll talk about the history and we sort of talk about this period where people could come and you know sort of come and look at the mad people and you know all the people in the audience will sit there going oh that's really barbaric that's terrible and then in the next step they will say so can we see on one of the wards and you think you know actually no you can't <laughs> we've kind of got away from that um so, so, so let, let, sorry to it let, let me ask you what, what do you think of then there are one or two authors who come to mind who've written uh, books that sort of profile different r- really extreme uh, mental health conditions mm-hmm. and uh, anatomize them and sort of put them out as, I don't think it's entirely instructional. I think there's an element of diversion going on there as well. How does that fit into the sort of landscape that we're talking about for you? So, I mean, I think it's, it's really important for us that this is a working hospital and that many of our visitors are going to be patients in the hospital now or people who've got relatives who are unwell or, you know, people in the community who are unwell. So we do have to be quite mindful. It's important not to sensationalise anything um, and to be uh, very straightforward in the way we talk about things but equally we don't want to hide things so for instance we will be displaying 
18th century manacles. We will be displaying straitjackets because if we don't display those things, we're going to be accused of whitewashing the history of mental health care, and that's something we we don't want to do either. So it is quite a sort of um, a, quite a tightrope we're walking. Really, we're hoping to uh, incorporate into this exhibition some sort of factual information about various mental health conditions, uh, not on the walls necessarily, but there'll be various interactive points where you can access, for instance, um, some information that the Royal College of Psychiatrists publish about different diagnoses. So we're hoping that the information people access will be reliable and straightforward and uh, not too sensational. A a friend of mine is going through an experience where both of his parents at the same time have uh, dementia. And he he said to me that one of the things he didn't realise and that nobody ever mentions is just how funny it can be at times. He mentioned his father coming into the room and announcing that he was a pokaloo and then leaving the room and then coming back a moment later and going, but what's a pokaloo? So I guess there are different shades to it, but yeah, um, I, I think you know, the, in the you know, in the in our sort of historical material, you find these sort of slightly humorous moments. Uh, also, I mean, I think it, it is one of those inescapable things. I mean, an example that comes to mind is uh, uh, there was a, a very famous nineteenth uh, and uh, late nineteenth, early twentieth century artist called Louis Wayne, who um, was best known for doing cats. Uh, he was, you know, famous commercial artist, very well known in his day. Um, and he, but he wasn't a terribly good businessman, and he ended up becoming unwell in later life. And he was in uh, Springfield Asylum in uh, in Tooting, and. Um, one of the hospital sort of visiting committee or, you know, where they sort of walked around and inspected, uh, walked around and looked over his shoulder and said, oh gosh, you know, you draw just like that man Louis Wayne. And of course he said, but I am Louis Wayne. Of course you are, dear. You know, um, so you, you do get these sort of, you know, these um, these elements of humour really coming, there, coming out throughout. There were a couple of other artists as well, I think, uh, of some renown who've passed through the doors here. Yeah, so I mean, Richard Dad is probably the most um, you know, sort of publicly well-known figure. Uh, he was at Bethlehem for uh, about t- around 20 years um, he had a very sort of distinguished early career uh, and then became unwell and murdered his father as a result of his illness and he didn't go to trial if he'd gone to trial he he wouldn't have gone to hospital he would have been hung uh, because he it was very much premeditated um, attack on his father he'd taken a change of clothes and a passport and you know he was uh, you know acting in a very uh, um, premeditated way so when he was picked up in France they just said oh he's far too unwell to stand trial and he was sent to Bethlehem so included in this exhibition there will be a photograph of him working at Bethlehem on a painting called Contradiction which is uh, sadly not in our collection uh, but he continued to paint um, throughout his time at Bethlehem and then when Broadmoor opened in the 1860s he was transferred over to Broadmoor and again a lot of the art we have in the collection is on loan from Broadmoor Hospital um, because he continued to create throughout his throughout his life although he was um, uh, you know not not free to to go anywhere he continued to have this amazing inner life and to to paint and draw and um, create. And uh, because of our conversation earlier, I now understand immediately why Broadmoor is as far out in the sticks as it is. Yes, well, you know, again, it was um, originally the uh, State Criminal Lunatic Asylum um, was built in in, uh, 1815 and it was actually tacked onto the back of Bethlehem Hospital. Um, Bethlehem was just about to move to its new site south of the river at St George's Fields, which is um, a building that's now used as the Imperial War Museum. And the Home Office decided it would be very convenient to tack their new State Criminal Lunatic Asylum onto the back of the hospital. But it was very overcrowded, uh, wasn't 
built particularly uh, beautifully. Conditions were pretty poor, so actually Bethlehem ended up moving a lot of the criminal lunatics into their main wards uh, to create space and just make things a bit more bit more pleasant. Um, so Broadmoor, by comparison, although it's starting to look a bit rickety around the edges now, I mean, when it opened, Broadmoor was, you know, ama- an amazing, beautiful place compared to where these people had been held. And they also took the opportunity to review each case when, when they moved people across to Broadmoor, and there were a few people where they uh, assessed them and said, actually, <laughs> you know, you can probably go, it's probably fine. Um, so the most famous of those would be Edward Oxford, who tried to assassinate Queen Victoria on Constitution Hill, uh, and he was only 18, so his family and friends made a, made a big point of saying that he was, wasn't quite right in the head, and, you know, he was very sort of behaving very irrationally, so he was sent to Bethlehem again, you know, as an alternative to being hung for his uh, attempt on the Queen's life. But uh, when he was due to be transferred to Broadmoor, they reassessed him and said, well, actually, if you'd like to emigrate under a different name, you do that. Um, and he spent the rest of his life in Australia and wrote back to his doctors at Bethlehem to, to tell them how he was doing, which is how we know about his story. That's, that's remarkable. I, I need to dig further into that. Um, but not now, because uh, I, I suspect there's a lot of uh, meat on that. A cost to be had on Edward Oxford, exactly. I think. Uh, there's a question that's been just uh, under the surface here that I haven't asked. Uh, but you've used the names Bethlehem and Bedlam. Uh, almost interchangeably, it yeah. seemed at points. What's yeah. uh, what's that all about? So, um, when the hospital was founded, it was founded as the Priory of St Mary of Bethlehem, and of course, nobody could be bothered to say that. It was a bit like the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, you know, far <laughs> too long. Um, so, quite quickly, it became known interchangeably as Bedlam or Bethlehem, um, just depending on what people, how people wanted to shorten. Bethlehem, really. Um, eventually, the, the name Bethlehem became a sort of the formally adopted name of the hospital. It was refounded by Henry VIII after the dissolution of the monasteries as one of the five royal hospitals of London and became Bethlehem Royal Hospital at that point. So Bethlehem became the sort of formal name of the hospital. And I suppose Bedlam became the sort of uh, the concept, really. So Bedlam is what appears in the Jacobin drama. You know, Bedlam is the, the idea of noise and disruption. Um, and also in the same way that Hoover became you know the generic name for a vacuum cleaner you get bedlam becoming the generic term for a, a psychiatric hospital so bedlam, you know a particular city or, or area would build themselves a bedlam but it seems also like bedlam is the mr hyde to the bethlam's uh, dr jekyll yeah it could be could be i mean there's a sort of undertone of the undertone of chaos i suppose isn't there uh, we should look uh, in in the closing minutes at whatsoever you feel we should squeeze in well um, as well as a permanent exhibition we we have a temporary exhibition gallery as well, so we could go and look in there because we have some paintings up. Well, the room we've just entered is a much brighter affair at this stage. Uh, a lot of downlighters and some contemporary art already on the walls. <laughs> if I was one of the artists, I'd be quivering uh, with nerves at the sight of all these buckets of paint mere inches from my painting. So we're assured that uh, they, they won't be painting anywhere near the uh, near the art. So um, all the works in this area are by one artist, Brian Charnley, um, who's a late 20th century artist. Um, some of the works on display belong to us, and others have been lent by the artist's estate, which is um, and just arrived this week. Um, so this is again is still very much a work in progress. Uh, 
um, that we we thought we would start with uh, a show concentrating on one particular artist. Uh, we will do different things throughout the year. Uh, we're aiming to have about four exhibitions a year. So it will be a great opportunity to show off work from our collection, but also work inspired by things in our collection. So Charnley was never a patient at Bethlehem or the Maudsley, but he was familiar with our art collection, um, and he was very inspired by a painting called The Maze, um, in which the artist depicts the inside of his head and all the different things that are going on. Um, and you'll see uh, some of Charnley's paintings um, are very obviously inspired by The Maze. And um, so, so we we will be using this space to show work that's inspired by the collections as well as work from our collections and this looks like a function room if ever i saw one. Oh, it could be good it could be good so the the main reason for the other half of this room which has no paintings in it at the moment is that for a number of years we've had a very successful learning program um schools universities and also you know general interest groups lifelong learners the term being the official one I think Um, but we've never had our own space to actually deliver that so this is the first time we will actually have had a room of our own um, where we've got proper audio visual equipment and you know sort of matching chairs and tables and that sort of thing rather than uh, constantly having to camp out in whatever room we can lay our hands on so it's um, really going to revolutionise what we're able to do both in terms of our learning programme and being able to open up to more schools and colleges but also you know being able to do an events programme you know film screenings talks that's sort of thing as well so we're really excited about this space uh, as the person in charge of uh, managing the public profile of the place richard uh, of course the redevelopment is a wonderful thing no question about that surely this m- must be compared with the museum as was uh, that was sort of deliberately under the radar because it was uh, kind of too too tiny to take on too many visitors this must represent a spike in your workload i think it's a fantastic opportunity for us um I- as I said, really, a lot of the work we're doing is around reducing stigma and really trying to encourage the local community to come in and see what we do and not be afraid of it or fearful. What have you got on your plate in terms of uh, making that happen? Uh, we're doing lots of work at the moment in terms of press releases and working with the media and trying to really kind of, you know, drum up some real buzz around the opening of the museum. And we're working a lot with the local community, uh, residents associations and other people to try and encourage people to come in. On which point perhaps it would be useful to give sort of clear directions of how to get here because it is a little bit out of the way. Eden Park's a good bet if you come in on the train and then it's a pleasant walk down here. It definitely is. You can get a direct train from London Bridge, Charing Cross or Cannon Street to Eden Park and then you can take the 356 bus or a short 10-minute walk from the station to the hospital following Monk's Orchard Road. I've heard about this hospital bus though. I don't know if this is something open to the general public. Um, I'm afraid it's not. Ah, (laughs) I was told that that might be a podcast in itself. Oh, it definitely is. <laughs> what goes on in the hospital bus? Oh, everything you can imagine. <laughs> it's um, it's on it actually. It's a really, it's it's a half hour journey from Bethlehem to the Maudsley, and actually, it's a really nice little little dozing time or or a half hour podcast, in fact. Yeah, I was actually catching up on your most recent podcast on the way here. <laughs> so that's what goes on on the bus. Me, no eating or drinking either. <laughs> Um, well, good luck. Uh, of course, by the time this goes out, uh, it will, will have been a fantastic success and there'll be uh, people piling through the doors. Exhibitions open, workmen vermoost. The very best of luck for that. Thank you. Should we mention the website uh, just finally? Yeah, so um, the museum's website, um, and we have sort of good directions of how to get here on the website as well, if you, if you d- didn't catch that. Maps and everything. Um, we are museumofthemind.org.uk. Victoria Northwood, Richard Morley, thanks very much. Thank you. My and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Victoria Northwood and Richard Morley. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. 
theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.